All right, friends, welcome back to Journey of the Soul. This is lesson number two, and we have a very special lesson in store for you all tonight. Before we get started, I want to... Before we get started, I want to mention uh, a few things. First of all, number one, very important. That is that we have some very dear course sponsors our, our courses, our events, all of our programming is, uh, is only due to your support. And I want to thank specifically for this course three individuals who have helped sponsor this course. Uh, Dr. Joy Maxey, who sponsored this course in honor of her father. Elaine Alexander, who has sponsored this course in honor of her husband. And Eve Bogan, who has sponsored this course in honor of her mother. So thank you for our sponsors and thank you for all of you for being here, participating and for contributing in your own way toward uh, Inchallenge Jewish Academy and to our community of learners and, uh, and learning and Jewish wisdom. Okay, on a tech, very technical note, right before I get started with the class, I, some people have told me that they're not getting my emails. So here's the deal. Everybody should be getting two emails. You should get an email before each class and an email after each class. If you are not getting the emails, one of two things are not happening. Either I'm not sending you an email, which I don't believe to be the case, or number two, my emails are going to your spam folder. Please check your spam. You might wonder, what's a spam folder for a nice uh, Jewish email? I don't have an answer for that, but it might end up in spam. If you're not getting the email, Check spam, it could very well be there. If it's not in spam either, Gavald, let me know and I will try to rectify the situation. As always, this class is about a conversation and a dialogue. The reality is we have Kanainahara, a very large group, and therefore we have to keep comments and interaction at a, at an, in an, have that in an efficient way. If you have a question, please write it in the chat. Or um, when we get to a place for questions, unmute yourself, briefly ask the question, and we'll try to, I'll try to address it and, uh, and continue with our theme. We have a lot to cover tonight, so let us begin. Friends, this is lesson two of Journey of the Soul. They tell a story of a woman who comes to her rabbi, and she comes with her will. She's written up a will. And she says to the rabbi, I'd like for you to read my will and let me know if everything is written in accordance with Jewish law. I want to know if the will that I've written is, shall we say, kosher. So the rabbi reads through the will, everything looks fine, except for one section. In one section she writes, I don't want to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. And the rabbi looks at it and looks at her. He's known her for years, for decades, from the community, from the shul. And he says to her, I don't understand. Why don't you want to be buried in the Jewish cemetery? So she says to him, uh, it's because I want to be buried at, at, at Bloomingdale's. So he says, why do you want to be buried at Bloomingdale's? So she says to him, look, I know that way at least my daughters will visit me at least twice a week. Okay, that's... Jerry, you got the... All right, there we go. We got the, uh, the drum roll, or not the drum roll, the, uh, the rim shot. Look, rim shot. yeah, rim shot. So last week, 
we explore the Jewish perspective on life and death. And life, we said last week, we explained, we explored this idea that life is not the body. Life is not defined as our physical um, physical uh, um, container, but rather life is defined as the soul or as a soul. A body without a soul is lifeless. It's as lifeless as a glove without a hand inside of it. The soul is the very definition of life, and not only is it life, but moreover, it is what we would call eternal life. Therefore, we explain that death does not mark the end of life because it does not mark the end of life for the soul. All death is, is the end of the body being animated by life. The true life, or true life, the life of the soul, continues on, certainly in a different state, but it continues on. That leads us directly to today's discussion. If you read the email, then you know what the subject is, what the topic is. Today's class is all about connections, soul connections. One of the biggest questions that people have that we might have when thinking about death is, do we, do we remain connected with our loved ones after death? Can we remain connected with our loved ones after death? This question is true, both from the perspective of those who have passed on, as well as the perspective of those who remain behind. So question number one, from both sides, right? So there's, there's two sides to the question. So the first side of the question is, does the soul that has transitioned out of the body remain connected with family, friends, and loved ones? Again, the soul having left the body, does it remain connected with those whom it loved on earth? And the second part of the question from the other perspective is, can we, who remain behind in this plane of existence, in this reality, can we still connect with the souls of our loved ones who have passed on? These are very personal questions. These are, these are very relevant questions. These are powerful questions. They are questions that I know that I have asked, questions that I have, and questions that I am sure that you have thought about too. And you should know the nature, the premise of the question. The premise of the question is connected intrinsically to what we discussed last week. Namely, namely, that it is the body that dies while the soul lives on eternally. That's what we established last week, which then raises, directly raises this week's question. Being that death means that the body is no longer animated, but the soul continues to live on. Based on that idea, now we have a question. Seeing as the soul continues on, continues to live, can we remain connected with that soul in its new space, in its unencumbered by the body state? Or once the soul segues away from the body, does it forget everything that it knew while it was connected with the body? You understand the question? Yes? The question is clear? 
seeing as the soul is in a new state, but still living on, can we remain connected with it? Or perhaps has the soul simply moved on to a different, a different reality, a different sphere and, and, and uh, an atmosphere of, of connection? This is the central question we're going to explore tonight from a Jewish perspective in tonight's incredible session of Journey of the Soul. Let us begin. So in order to gain a clear and comprehensive, a clear and comprehensive understanding of the soul's cross-border connection, right? The soul's connection uh, that can transcend, well, the question is, can it or can't it? A connection that perhaps can transcend this experience of crossing over, we need to look at four important stages that take place when a person passes away. We're going to look at these four stages and look at their meaning Jewishly, look at some observances, rituals, teachings that pertain to these four stages, and see what each of these four stages that speak to a person's passing, we'll see what they mean for a question about maintaining soul connections from both perspectives. Ours, in other words, we who remain behind, as well as those who have passed on. The four stages we're going to look at are, number one, the moment of passing. Number two, the moments after passing, which include the transition of the soul to the beyond. Number three, preparations that are taken to prepare the, the deceased, the one who passed away for burial, interment. And number four, the four stages, the time after burial, including visiting the gravesite. These are the four stages, the four very important stages uh, of passing that we are going to explore. And we are going to see what Judaism teaches about these four experiences and how each of them speaks to the larger question of soul connections. I hope this introduction makes sense. I hope you have kind of in your head the structure of tonight's class. If I had to restate it under 30 seconds, maybe even under 25 seconds, I would say simply, our question is, to what extent can we remain connected with those who have passed on and they with us? And in order to explore this question, we're, gonna, we're going to look at four stages of passing. The moment of passing, the moments after passing, preparation for burial, and post-burial connections or, or rituals. These are the four stages we're going to look at, all connected with the question about connections. Hope that makes sense. Let's jump in. So we begin with our first stage, which is the initial moment of passing. And based on what you know from this course, perhaps what you've studied Jewishly in other, in other settings, I want to open this question up and ask it as uh, somewhat of an open-ended question or a question for discussion. What happens, what happens at the moment a person passes away? What, what is the significance of the moment, so to speak? I don't mean significance in, a, in, a, um, in any other way other than, than what is happening when a person, the moment a person passes away. Can somebody give me a clear, concise description of that based on Jewish knowledge? Ray, go ahead. Um, well, I'm speaking for experience because I, I was with my husband when he passed away. 
And if you're asking about bodily things, the heart did stop beating. I'm asking more about from the perspective of soul, from the perspective of the soul, what's, what, what happens? But th 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 thank you for, for fo we're, we're going to focus on the body as well in a moment. I should have specified in my question, what is happening to the soul at the moment of, at the moment of passing? kind of like a reflection of its purpose and contribution to like eternality perhaps perhaps but on a more, much more basic level and that's a, that's a very it's a very important idea which we will cover in subsequent lessons at the very core though what is what is the moment of passing what is happening at that moment on a very may, maybe my question is even a little bit too basic um, what 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 is happening at that moment the soul separates from the body. Perfect, the body perfect, the yes. Okay, good, good. I, 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 heard, I heard a few people, I think, uh, uh, almost simultaneously say the same idea, share the same idea. And, and, and that is, that is what, where, where I'm going with this. The moment of death is the moment when the soul uncouples from the body. The soul and body are joined, they are connected, um, we spoke last week about a state where the body might be, might be weak and the soul is perhaps not as uh, um, vibrant as, as it once was. Nonetheless, the soul and body are still integrated. The moment of passing signifies the moment when the soul and body are untethering. They uncouple from each other. But that's, again, on a very basic level. Let's look at this on a much deeper level and a much more nuanced level. According to Kabbalah, Jewish mystical thought, when we use the word soul, there are actually multiple dimensions of soul. You may be familiar with this. You may have uh, studied this elsewhere, or perhaps in my classes. Um, Kabbalah speaks of five dimensions of the soul. We are not going to cover all five tonight. I want to speak about, very briefly, the lowest three dimensions of the soul. I'll mention all five, but we're going to focus on the lowest three dimensions. So the five dimensions of the soul from bottom up are called nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, and yechida. Again, I'm going to go from bottom up. I'll say it again. I'm giving you the Hebrew terms. In English, you could say soul, 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 soul and you would be correct. There are five dimensions of the soul, and they're significant in the Hebrew, and instead of translating the words, I'm gonna, trans I'm gonna try to translate the concepts so that you understand what these are. So again, we have nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, yechida. I'm gonna focus on the lower three. The upper two are considered to be almost um, uh, um, su sup uh, um, like transcendent dimensions of the soul that don't necessarily operate in a day-to-day -day ongoing basis within our bodies. That's why they, they, it's, these are for, for, for another time, for another discussion. Let's talk about the lower three dimensions of the soul. Let's start from the bottom, if you will, nefesh. So what is nefesh? 
Again, the translation, soul, but it's not going to help us. Right? The word, the translation of the word is not going to help us. Let's understand the concept. What is nefesh? Nefesh is the life force of the soul that animates the body and drives basic biological function. So basic biological function and animation is driven by nefesh. That's the first and lowest level of the soul. Above that is what we call ruach. Ruach you might call spirit. It's still a part of the soul. Again, translations are meaningless in this context. It's about the concept. What is ruach according to Kabbalah? Ruach is the life spirit of the soul that powers the emotions and personality of the person. So I want to give you a very simple, I don't know if I'm giving, even giving you a way to understand it other than maybe just kind of illustrating it just with, with, with my movement. Okay, so I'm moving my hand, right? I'm moving my fingers, right? Where is that power coming from? That's what we call nefesh. I feel something in my heart. I feel an emotion. I have a personality, right? There's another dynamic other than me being able to move my fingers, correct? There's a personality, there's an emotional reality of my life that stems and is, I don't want to use the word animated, it is um, uh, um, powered by, powered by the ruach of the soul, the ruach dimension of the soul. So we've talked about the first two. Nefesh, basic animation, biological function, the fact that the machine ticks is nefesh. The fact that the human machine can feel and has a personality, that is ruach. Let's go one step up and this will be our final step today of this ladder. The third level of the soul, the third level, right, one, two, three is called neshama. Again, I want to be very clear here. When we speak generally, nefesh, neshama, it's all the same thing, generally. But in Kabbalah, Kabbalah is very precise with language. Kabbalah says, generally speaking, we have a soul, but specifically, there are different dimensions of the soul. Nefesh, ruach, now let's talk about neshama, the third dimension. What is neshama? Translated as soul, it's not going to help us. Neshama is... The soul that provides for human intelligence. That's what neshama is. Three different dimensions, three different realities, three different capabilities. I can move my hand, I can feel love, and I can understand concepts. I can do all three, maybe even at the same time, right? I can do all three. All three represent three different areas of ability powered by three different dimensions of my soul. Nefesh powers basic movement and function, biological movement and function. Ruach powers my emotional reality and neshama powers my intellectual reality. The reason why I'm sharing this with you is because when we want to understand what happens at the moment of death, 
right? I said before, what happens at the moment of death? Soul separates from body. Before they were connected, like I said last week, hand and glove, and now they're separating. It's going to be much more nuanced than that because we understand that it's not just soul and body. The soul itself has different dimensions. So the question is, which dimensions are separating? How are they separating? When are they separating? Does each separate at a different time, etc.? These are the questions that arise once we go a little bit deeper and a little bit more nuanced into the conversation. So I want to share with you um, what Kabbalah says about what happens to these different layers of the soul when a person passes away. Kabbalah says the following. Nefesh, the lowest dimension. Listen to this. Nefesh remains with the body. Nefesh, I'm going to say it again. Nefesh at least part of the nefesh in Kabbalah, even nefesh, the, the lowest dimension, is also divided into multiple layers, but that's already getting way too deep for tonight. Nefesh, in general, the lowest dimension of the soul, remains with the body. Remains with the body even after passing. Which is why the body remains on some level intact. Now, there's no animation, although the nefesh usually provides animation. At this point, it's providing basic substance and structure. And of course, at, at, with time, there is a loss of that to some extent, but something still remains. And so nefesh remains with the body on its journey. Ruach, Ruach ascends, not literally, it's not actually physically climbing anywhere but it ascends to a spiritual state, a different spiritual re a state of being. It ascends to Gan Eden Hatachton, the lower dimension of Gan Eden Paradise. And Neshama ascends to Gan Eden Ha'elyon, the higher chamber of Gan Eden of Paradise. Three dimensions, three destinies. The Nefesh, by and large, remains with the body. Ruach ascends to lower Gan Eden, and Neshama sends to Upper Gan Eden. So now you know a little bit of Kabbalah on the specifics of what happens at the moment of passing. You might be wondering, what, is this, what does this have to do with, it's interesting information perhaps, but what does this have to do with us and with our central question about are we connected still with our loved ones and their souls after they've passed on? Trust me, I've thought of this as well. It's all part of the conversation. It's all connected. Let me share why, let me explain why we're discussing this. To understand this, I want to introduce a letter. This letter was penned by the founder of the Chabad movement, the founder of Chabad philosophy, Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, also known as the Alter Rebbe. He was born in the 1700s, 1745, passed away in 1812, and he wrote a letter of consolation upon the passing of a colleague of his. He had a colleague who was also a great leader, a, a, a really profound leader of the Jewish community. And when his colleague, this other leader, Rabbi Menachem Mendel of Haradak, when he passed away, the colleague passed away, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, wrote a letter of consolation to this other rabbi's 
disciples. All right, I hope that makes sense, that little, uh, uh, just the context of this letter. So here is one great rabbi writing to the students of another great rabbi who passed away about a letter of consolation to console them for the loss of their, of their, uh, their spiritual guide. I'm going to share my screen with you. Oh, I should mention that at this point, I, I hope that most of you received your textbooks. If you didn't, you should know it's for one reason only, and that is because of the storm that recently hit. We've been, uh, we, we got delayed a few days in some of the shipments. So if you did not receive your book, it is scheduled to arrive either Wednesday or Thursday. My apologies that it didn't arrive yet, but for tonight, I will be sharing my screen so we can certainly follow along together. If you have your book, pull it out. If not, take a look at my screen and let's do this together. All right, let me pull this up. Give me a moment. This should be the correct file. All right, I'm going to make this a little bit larger. We're going to jump in. Dr. Maxi, will you please get us started with text 1A, uh, letter from the Alter Rebbe of Shneir Zaman of Liadi, as is known. As is known, the life of the Sadiq righteous person is not physical but spiritual. It consists of faith, reverence, and love for God. During the Sadiq's lifetime on earth, these three attributes that belong to the soul dimension of Ruach are constrained within their container and guard, namely the nefesh that is bound to the corporeal body, poses the restraints of physical space upon these attributes. As a result, all the Sadiq's disciples receive but a glow of these Ruach attributes a mere ray that is emitted beyond the container by means of the Sadiq's holy words and thoughts. The inability to receive directly from the Ruach is a revelatory handicap, and therefore our sages stated that it takes 40 years for students to fully plumb the depths of their master's teaching, Talmud Abodazara 5b. By contrast, after the Sadiq's passing, the Nefesh separates from the Ruach and remains in the grave, while the Ruach and its three attributes rise to Ganeden. Consequently, whoever is close to the Sadiq can receive directly from his Ruach in Ganeden because the Ruach is no longer restrained in a container or confined to a physical space. There is now a straightforward path for the Sadiq's disciples to connect with the essence of their master's Ruach, the faith awe and love with which the Sadiq served God, and not merely these attributes, outer glow that escape beyond their container. The disciples connect and receive commensurate to the degree of their loving connection and closeness to the Sadiq during for the transmission of all things spiritual is always by means of great love. Thank you very much for reading that, and, and th th that's the reason why just so everybody knows, that's the reason why I gave that Kabbalistic introduction, because this letter is so important to understand what happens upon a person's passing, about understanding connections after passing on both sides, and to understand it, we needed the lingo, we need to understand nefesh, ruach, neshama, but specifically nefesh and ruach. And I want to summarize, I'm going to stop sharing for a moment, and I want to kind of um, just uh, summarize and encapsulate 
what we just shared in that magnificent text 1a, this letter of Nechama, of, uh, of consolation from the Alter Rebbe. So he writes like this. The life of a tzaddik is not a biological life, right? A tzaddik is not a tzaddik because they know how to swing a baseball bat. That's not what makes a tzaddik a tzaddik. A tzaddik is a tzaddik because of faith and love and awe and, 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 and in other words, the emotional personality, the spiritual and emotional personality of that individual, that is who they were. They're not a biological being. They're an emotional and spiritual being. And therefore he says, as long as a tzaddik is alive, the ruach, which is that emotional personality dimension, the ruach is stuck because all the layers of the soul are stuck in a body. The ruach is stuck with the nefesh, which is stuck in the body. So if you want to connect with the tzaddik, you have to go through the body. You have to speak to the tzaddik. You have to make an appointment. You have to write a letter. You have to pick up the phone. Of course, phones didn't exist then in the 1700s. But you have to go through the channels, the normative, physical, biological channels to get access to the ruach. What happens when a person passes away? The nefesh goes with the body, but the ruach, the ruach untethers. So what happens? Does it disappear? That was last week's class. We know that soul doesn't disappear. The soul doesn't die. The soul cannot die. So what happens to the ruach? The ruach is now in full glory, in its full potency, unencumbered, unhibited, unlimited by the corporeal body that otherwise would constitute a physical limitation, the Ruach is no longer limited. I'll give you such a poor example, but it's the best that I got right now. It, it's, it's like, it's a degrading example, but it's what I got. Imagine there's a, it's, I feel even guilty saying it. Imagine a signal is coming in through your cable or internet. Yeah, 8K. You know what 8K is? It's double 4K. You know what 4K is? We call it high definition, right? So there's 4K, there's 8K, maybe there's 12K. Who knows, right? Lots of Ks. So you have this incredible signal, this high definition signal, but imagine that your television is still one of those, um, you know, the ones that aren't the flat screen, the ones that have a lot of depth to it with the little rabbit ears coming out of the top, right? And sometimes you got to give it a clap so that it, uh, <laughs> it turns on and it works, right? So what's happening with the signal? You're not getting the full signal. You're not getting the full signal. The potential is there for vibrancy, for depth, for color, for beauty. But you're looking at it and it's wavy and it's, the colors are, 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 are limited. Again, it's such a poor example. I, I apologize for this. Lahavdil, I can't even compare. The vibrancy and, and beauty and, and just, just the vibrancy of the soul, of the ruach of the soul, right? As long as it's inside the body, it's muted, right? It's limited, it's diminished. 
when a person passes away, the Ruach is untethered. The Ruach now is able to be seen in its full beauty. Now, I understand. There's a, everything comes with a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a plus and a minus. The plus is that when, a, when the soul is in the body, you can access it through the body. The minus is you're accessing it only through the body, which constitutes a limitation. The plus after a person's passing is you can access it un, in an unlimited fashion. Anytime, anywhere, anyhow, no limitations, full access. The challenge is you have to know how to tap into that energy. You have to know how to access. The way it was described in text one, what connects souls is the bond of love, the bond of connection. What is connection? Connection. Thinking about the other, loving the other. Those bonds don't change, and those bonds keep the connection alive. So again, two very important points. Two very important points. For those who remain behind, in other words, for those who remain living Ba'al in this world, right? For those that remain here, death means that the Ruach is no longer connected with the Nefesh and the body, but it's still available. It's in Gan Eden. Where's Gan Eden? How do I get to Gan Eden? Gan Eden's right here, right? It's not higher. It's not a different physical reality. I mean, it's, it's not a physical reality at all. It's a spiritual reality, but it's right here, so to speak. In other words, it's not anywhere else. It's ever-present and ever-accessible. But it's about accessing it. So the potential for access, the potential for connection is absolutely there. On the side of the soul, the soul remains, not the soul remains, the soul not only remains alive, but actually has a greater, a greater um, power to self than before. Because before, its feelings and its, uh, its ideals were muted within the body. I want to share with you one more text. Um, this is really powerful. I'm going to read this text. Uh, this is text 1B if you have it. Uh, if you have a book, you can open it up to page number, I think this is page 45. This is called A Spirit Unshackled. Text 1B. I'm going to read this. It is also a matter of common sense that whatever the direct cause of the separation of the soul from the body, whether a fatal accident or a fatal illness, it could, only, it could affect only any of the vital organs of the physical body, but could in no way affect the spiritual soul. A further point, which is also understandable, and this is the point that I was making before, is that during the soul's lifetime on earth, in partnership with the body, the soul is necessarily so to speak, handicapped in certain respects by the requirements of the body, such as eating and drinking, etc. Even a tzaddik, whose life is consecrated to God, cannot escape the constraints, sorry, the restraints of life in a material and physical environment. Consequently, when the time comes for the soul to return home, it is essentially a release for it, as it makes its ascent to a higher world no longer restrained by a physical body and physical environment. Henceforth, the soul is free to enjoy the spiritual bliss of being near to Hashem, to God, in the fullest measure. So for the soul, it is an unleashing of its full potential, its full reality. For those that remain behind, death allows those who are connected to be as connected, if not more connected, 
than before. This is why, this is why in Jewish thought and Jewish tradition, the moment of passing is such a significant moment spiritually. At that moment, the full beauty of the soul, the full resolution, so to speak, spiritual resolution of the soul is unleashed and the soul feels intensely all of its wonderful emotions. It's like everything is unleashed in that full 8K resolution, again, in that example. And although the Alta Rebbe, in, in his letter in text 1A, speaks of a tzaddik, of being connected with the ruach of a tzaddik even after the tzaddik's passing, the truth is this applies to every soul. That means that its pure spiritual beauty is fully on display, both for itself as well as for its loved ones who are somehow tuned in with love to the soul. It's not surprising to me that many have told me, many, have, many who have been near a loved one in the moment of their passing have reported seeing something, either seeing a light, seeing some sort of wisp, some sort of uh, flash or, or, or a smoke or something. Something happened at that moment. Again, when you understand spiritually the idea of, of, of a soul and nefesh going one place, but the ruach and neshama, we didn't even speak about neshama, being unleashed in a new environment, in a new reality, it's not surprising that there is certainly something to be sensed by everyone present at that moment. So I want to kind of recap what we just learned and bring it back to our core and central discussion of today's class. What we just learned is what Kabbalah says about the moment of one's passing. And not just is this informative to understand more about that moment, but it also speaks volumes about the central question of today's lesson, and that, that is, are we still connected with our loved ones? Can we still be connected with our loved ones? Are they still connected with us after passing? And the answer is, according to Judaism, absolutely yes. 100%. The soul is still alive, and not only is it still alive, it's more alive than before. And we're still connected, and not only still connected, but we can, we can choose to be even more connected than before because no longer do we need to go through those physical channels that oftentimes serve as limitations. We can have an even closer and more intense relationship with our loved ones than before. And this is true even as we mourn, and even as we mourn their physical loss, the two don't contradict each other. There's a reality for the body, and also a reality, body slash nefesh, as well as a reality for the soul, ruach, neshama, etc. So that's all stage one and the first point, the first of these four stages of tonight's session. Um, I want to check in for a moment and see if there are any questions of clarification that, um, that anyone has. Again, if you have a question, um, I haven't had a chance to look through the chat. I'm going to look through it very quickly as we do this. I'm going to try to simul simultaneously do both. For for like, try to keep it maybe this whole session under about two minutes. Um, if you have a question, please unmute and ask it as brief as possible so that we can get to more information because we have a ton of, 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 uh, of Jewish ideas to study tonight. Jump in if you have a question. Please. 
But don't be in souls. Uh, let's see. Ray, go ahead. One second, Adira, one second. Adira, hold on one second. Ray, go ahead. Is there a limit, is there a time limit as to when you connect with the soul after they pass? Like no, lo love is the key. Love is the key. As long as that love is there, the bond is there. Excellent question. Thank you for asking, so I had a chance to clarify. Love is the key. As long as there's love, there's no time limit to, to that connection. Excellent question. Um, Adira, go ahead. I thought there were seven souls. You got the Nefesh Chai, Ruach, Yechida, and Neshama. But what about the godly and the animal souls? Those are two more. Excellent question. Excellent question about the animal soul. Let's leave that for another opportunity. Tonight we're speaking about the godly soul. It is a good question. Kabbalah also speaks of the animal soul. Um, to really do a fully exhaustive look at souls would require its own course. Again, this is all in the context of a very specific question. Are we still connected? Can we still remain connected with our loved ones? That's why I'm trying to bring in just what we need to, to address this point, but not too much that overwhelms us and moves it to a different conversation. Mindy, please go ahead. Is there any connection to a soul when a departed loved one appears to you in a dream? Absolutely, 100%. 100%. I cannot tell you the thousands and thousands of stories and pages that have been written in Jewish thought about this topic, about connections and visitations and dreams and messages. Um, the short answer is yes, this is another form of connection. But what I'm speaking about, what we discussed tonight, is even without that type of you know, vision or, or appearance, the basic and essential connections that we feel constitute a real connection. Hope that makes sense. Um, Alex, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, just a bit clarified. Um, when the, the five levels, the five levels that you discuss. Yes. Um, they're all part of the godly soul. Correct. Yes. Yes. Exactly. All part of the godly soul. We're only talking tonight about the godly soul. Correct. Yeah. It just, seems, it just feels. Um, I have a little difficulty wrapping my head around the nephesh as being part of the godly soul, because I think of the godly soul as more lofty. Yeah, excellent question, excellent question. So even the nefesh also has a divine, yeah, it's a good question. Again, that would take us too much into this godly soul versus animal soul. It's a good question. Maybe we'll follow up offline, it's, but it's a very good question. Um, but, but it's all part of the godly soul. Um, Mike, I saw you had a question. Rabbi, I don't... This might be premature, but where? What is the origin? Where does the soul begin? Excellent question. Do all souls begin at the same moment? Are they recycled, or is it an infinite number? I, I, I'm having trouble with excellent connecting, and a lot of connections to the same soul from the past. Blah blah blah. Excellent question. A, a very very good question. Um, essentially, souls are coming directly from God. And all souls originate at the same time. However, however, this is a major idea. There is a concept of reincarnation, which can generate new souls, which are considered to be branch souls, which I can't explain more tonight because we have a whole lesson. Lesson five, I believe, dedicated to reincarnation, which I think will address your question in a full way. So it's an excellent question. But Yeah, go ahead. 
But are souls cobbled together? How do they... It's a good question. It's a good question. For tonight, we're going to explore souls as individuals. Come lesson five, we may have a different take on it, but it's still not going to take away from the premise of tonight. But it's an excellent question that you're asking. It's an excellent question. Okay. Um, and Richard, final question. And I know more. I know more. I know there are more questions, but let's do this very quickly, and we're going to move on. Quickly. How long is our time limit? Is the nephesh remains with the body? Excellent question. Excellent question. The answer is no. The nephesh remains for the body indefinitely. But as I said, parenthetically, and you may have heard me say this, I, I said it quickly, but I did say this. We can go back to the recording afterwards. There are two dimensions of the nephesh. There are a higher dimension of the nephesh does seem to have a time limitation on it. The lower dimension of the nephesh remains forever with, with, uh, with the body. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, what it does with the body or for the body and the significance of that. Good question. All right, let's continue on. I know, I, I'm sure there are more questions and I apologize if I did not get to your question, but we will have more time to check in. And I do believe also that, there, that as we go on, perhaps some of the questions that you might have will be either directly or indirectly addressed. And certainly I'm always available if, even if I don't get the question in the class, we can talk about it after the class. You can call, text, and otherwise schmooze. Let's continue with our second stage, if you will. The second uh, stage of exploration. And that is as we explore the moments after passing. So there's what happens at the moment of passing, which is a separation. But then there is what happens next and the way this is understood in Kabbalah and Judaism is that there is a process although there is an initial separation but the process of separation you know, there's an initial instance of separation but then there is a process by which there is a transition so there's first the separation step one step two is a transition and the way I'd like to frame this is by asking a different question. And it's going to be a rhetorical question. You don't need to unmute. It's going to be, I'm going to ask it, but then I'm going to share with you a text that deals with this directly. The question is, is death painful for the soul? And you might think based on everything that we've learned up until now, maybe death is not painful for the soul. It's a celebration. It's a high definition. Finally, can plug in. To, to the truth and become aware of self in a way that was not possible before, married to the body. And on one level it's true, and we just literally spoke about that, but there is also another reality, and that is that in our tradition we understand that death is painful on some level for the soul. And to explain why and how this is so, let's continue inside. I'm going to share my screen with you. And let's continue our text and our exploration. What we're going to do now is pull up text number two. This is coming from the Zohar. The Zohar is the primary book of Kabbalah. Not the first book, but, but the primary source, one of the primary sources of Jewish mystical teaching. The Zohar says the following Mindy. Uh, please read if you're up to it, please read text number two. Sure. 
Nothing is as hard for the soul as its separation from the body. Thank you. And this may raise a question, as I just raised before, if the soul separating is a benefit for the soul because now it's no longer stuck in the body or stuck through the vision, through the limitations of the body. So isn't that uh, a celebration? Why is it difficult? Why, is it, why does the Zohar say that nothing is as hard for the soul as its separation from the body? And that's a strong statement. That's not hyperbole. That's not the Zohar trying to give us some shock value statement. It's not, you know, uh, a hot take, you know, God forbid. This is literally a reality, a spiritual reality, that nothing is as hard for the soul as its separation for the body. We spoke about it a little bit last week. We spoke about how life is difficult for the soul, but how death is also difficult for the soul. And I want to cycle back to that and explain this statement on two levels. Level number one, on a basic level, the soul, and yes, this includes even the Ruach and even the Neshama, even those higher dimensions, the soul becomes accustomed to its relationship and its connection with the body after spending 60, 70, 80, 120, please God, years with the body the soul, even those higher dimensions, gain a certain connection and the, with the body. The body is familiar to it. It's what it's accustomed to. It's home. It's home. On a deeper level, like we discussed last week, the soul knows, the soul senses, that upon its separation from the body, it will no longer be able to do a mitzvah. But again, getting back to the mo on the most basic level, <clears throat> the soul becomes attached to the body. The soul becomes attached to the body, literally and figuratively. It's attached to the body, but it grows attached to the body. It grows accustomed to the body, even the higher levels. The, nef the ruach and the neshama, it learns how to feel through the heart. And it learns how to think through the brain. And so you have these, these higher dimensions of the soul that are still, still relating and accustomed to relating to the body. And yeah, the body gives it a hard time and provides, you know, a limitation for it, but it's like an old couple that may argue, but they can't live without each other either, right? They may not always see eye to eye, but they're always side by side. They're always side by side. So separation, the soul separation from the body is difficult. Nothing is painful for the soul as saying goodbye to the body. And so this takes us again to our second stage. Yes, death constitutes separation, but this separation is not easy and therefore it doesn't happen instantaneously. Yeah, there is an initial separation that does happen instantaneously, but there is a transition period, as we'll see from the text. This is very important, and indeed, it's very powerful to explore. I'm going to share my screen with you once again. Let's pull up the relevant texts. Um, we're going to go through, in rapid succession, a series of texts, beginning with text number 3, 4a, 4b, and 4c. So text 3 says the following. I'm going to read this. For three days, 
This means three days after, the first three days after a person's passing. The soul hovers over the body, thinking that it can return to it. After three days, when it sees that the body's face has changed, it leaves the body and departs. Next text, 4a. For seven days, the soul goes from the house where it lived to the grave, and from the grave back to the house. And the soul mourns its body. After seven days, the body is subjected to its fate, and the soul ascends to its place. Text 4b. I'm, we're going to explore all of these. I'm just going in rapid succession, so you'll see why. Text 4b. For 30 days, the soul and the body are judged as one, and thus the soul is located down here on earth. After that, the soul ascends while the body erodes in the earth. And finally, text 4c. For 12 months, the body still exists and the soul ascends and descends. After 12 months, the body becomes null and the soul rises and no longer returns. And if you or I, or if you and I, were being picky, we would say we've just uncovered four texts that contradict each other. One text says after three days, the soul moves on. One text says after seven days, the soul moves on. One text says after 30 days, the soul moves on. And the final text said after 12 months, the soul moves on. So which one is it? Which one is it? Does it take three days, seven days, 30 days, or 12 months? And you know the answer. You know the answer. I don't need to tell you, tell you the answer. Anyone who's ever moved on from anything knows that it happens in stages. There's no such thing as, I just moved on. Right? There's no such thing as, yep, I just moved on. We could say that, and we can think that, but you and I know anyone who has in any way moved on, moved out, any sort of transition, it happens in stages. So for the soul, the same thing is true. Death, as we discussed in part one, the first moment of death constitutes a separation. But even after the separation, the soul still has an affinity and a longing on some level for the body, for what it is, for what it knows or what it knew or what it was comfortable with. And so there's a stage of three days of longing, and then seven days, a little bit less, 30 days, a little bit less, and 12 months, a little bit less. With each successive stage, the soul is able to, I'm trying to find the right word to use, I don't want to use the word move on, because it's not about moving on, but the soul is able to transition gradually away and, and continue its journey where it needs to go and to embrace its new stage of reality. You know, it's, I, I, I hesitate, as you see tonight, I've been hesitating giving any sort of um, analogies with the fear that any analogy is not going to do justice to such powerful ideas. And, and I, I would hate to you know, reduce it with an analogy that concretizes and flattens an idea in our mind but I do think at the same time that analogies are helpful, so I'm going to give one, but please forgive me for being very reductionary with the, with the analogy. 
So think about an analogy of a, of a, of a child, a young adult who's going away to college for the first time. Yeah? So they, there, there is a day in which they pack up a car or you pack them up or whatever it is and they leave the house. That does, there is a day that that happens. But that first day in the dormitory, are we going to say that they don't feel a longing? They don't feel a connection? Of course there's a connection. As time moves on, the transition becomes a little bit easier. Right? The transition becomes a little bit more manageable. Do they ever forget? Do they disconnect entirely? Of course not. And we discussed that in the first part of our conversation. But there is a transition. There are transition periods in which the transition moves on gradually to the next state. All the texts that we just shared, text 3 and 4a and 4b and 4c, are nothing that I am innovating. It's not coming from me or from this course, Journey of the Soul. Everything has a source to it. It's coming from the Talmud. It's coming from Zohar. It's coming from Kabbalah. Everything is well-sourced in Judaism. You can look up the original sources for yourself. What I'm trying to tell you is this is all classic Jewish understanding about the journey of the soul. This course is called Journey of the Soul. At the moment of passing, there is a separation, but a journey begins. A new journey begins, a journey of transition. And as time passes, the transition picks up and continues. Different stages, three days, seven days, 30 days, 12 months. This is what is discussed in Jewish thought. What's incredible, and this is the next point, which, which is mind-blowing, what's incredible is that this process of disengagement, if you will, for the soul is perfectly paralleled by the grieving process of the loved ones of we who remain behind. In other words, as the soul continues its journey and it moves away and further moves on and its pain, if you will, is alleviated by its journey and its, its slow and steady progress away from the body, away from its experience on earth in a body, as the soul becomes more comfortable and less in pain, Jewish law, listen to this, Jewish law calls upon us to respond in like measure. Jewish law calls on us to, to grieve. And again, I, I have to be very clear here. Grieving is intensely personal and, and, and absolutely individual, a, 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 an individual experience. At the same time, there, there is Jewish law, halacha, that, that, that discusses the grieving process. And there are different... Uh, forms of grieving that we're meant to do for three days, for seven days, for 30 days, and the first 12 months. And the point, and we're going to go through some texts in a moment, the point is that one perfectly mirrors the other. And I'll tell you in a moment the significance of that. But first, let's look at this inside and let's see these different stages as they are reflected on earth with the mourners. Take a look at text number five, Maimonides. Rambam writes the following. This is halacha, Jewish law, the laws of mourning. Mourners observe three days of weeping, 
seven days of eulogies, and for 30 days, restrictions on haircuts and wearing freshly ironed clothing, marrying, joining a celebration of friends, and traveling on business. Which means that the most severe restrictions in Jewish law for the first three days, then seven, and it gets easier. And then 30 days, again, a little bit easier, although there are restrictions. And then 12 months, there are also restrictions. We have another text that speaks about the 12-month period from the Code of Jewish Law. Um, I'm going to read it quickly. I don't want to get bogged down in the details of this because today's focus is not about how to mourn and how to grieve. That's really next week's class, um, which I'll talk about at the end of this week's class. But just to note, what is the 12-month period? Here we go. If you encounter an acquaintance within 30 days of that person having lost an ex of kin, offer words of consolation and avoid the customary pleasantries. If 30 days have elapsed since the relative's passing, greet your acquaintance in the usual manner and offer indirect words of consolation. Avoid mentioning the deceased by name and extend the generic consolation such as may be comforted. If your acquaintance is mourning the loss of a parent, you should offer direct message Messages of comfort for the first 12 months and only after that scale it back to indirect consolation. And again, you might wonder why the details and, and what does it mean. Today's class is not about specifically the laws of mourning as much as I'm bringing this up to point out that in Jewish law, these stages are discussed three days, seven days, 30 days, and 12 months. I saw somebody wrote in the message box about Kaddish. Kaddish is, will be discussed in a different class, why Kaddish is not for 12 months, for 11 months, I could give you an answer now, but it's, real, it's not on the topic, and I don't want to distract from the point. I want to be very clear as to what, what the objective here, bringing all of this is. The objective is very, very simple. It's to say that death marks the separation, but after that moment of separation, the journey begins. Yes, the child has left the house and gone to college, but they're not gone yet, right? They haven't moved on yet. There's still a connection, a lot of phone calls, and maybe some tears as well. And it's not so easy, and oftentimes it's painful because it's a gradual process of divestment, of letting go. And as that eases for the soul on its journey, it eases in parallel to those who remain behind. The implication is staggering, and I will spell it out. In, in hopefully very clear terms, the implication of these parallel realities, these parallel steps, the implication of them paralleling each other is staggering. And the message is that we mourn not only for our loved ones, but more importantly and maybe more profoundly, we mourn with them. Our mourning is not just mourning our loss, but it's empathizing with their pain, I hope that's coming across in a, in, a, in a coherent way. Mourning, in the Jewish understanding, is not just mourning our loss and feeling our pain and the void in our hearts, although that is true, and we'll speak about that next week. Mourning is also about, it's also about empathizing with the pain, or the challenge at least, that the soul is going through in its process. So as the soul feels the pain of its separation most acutely, we feel pain most acutely. Not just our personal loss, but we empathize with the soul's pain in its separation. And as the soul becomes more accustomed to its journey and its transition, we likewise 
become comforted by that and our mourning diminishes. All to say that in a magnificent, in, a, in, in such a touching way, the Jewish understanding of the soul's transition mirrored in the mourning, the, the, the Jewish laws of mourning, the various stages, all of this speaks on a bigger level to our central question of the class. The central question is, do we, do we remain connected with the soul after its passing? The answer is yes. In stage one, we spoke about connecting with the Ruach in a, in a way of, uh, in, in an unprecedented way. And now we're speaking of an empathetic and a loving connection with the soul of our loved ones after they've passed on. We feel what they feel because the connection remains. And as they become comforted, we below become comforted. And maybe we don't recognize, maybe if we didn't learn this tonight, maybe we didn't connect the dots between how we feel and how the soul must feel, but now you know how Judaism looks at it. That when we feel pain, it's not just our pain that we feel and our loss, right? It's also we feel the pain of our loved ones. This is the second section, the second stage of tonight's discussion. I want to jump immediately into, into this third section. We spoke about the moment of separation, and then we spoke about the moments after separation, i.e. the transition of the soul away from the body. Now let's speak of preparations for burial. Preparations that are taken to lay our loved ones to rest. And really this marks a bit of a shift in our conversation. We've been talking about the soul and the soul's experience after death. Now let's talk about the experience of the body after death. What happens to the body? What, what are our responsibilities to the bodies of our loved ones after passing? By now you know in section one that the body doesn't remain just the body. There's a nephesh with it, correct? Yes? We talked about that in, in, in the first part of this class. Yeah, how the, the Ruach and Neshama transition um, or, or separate, whereas the Nefesh, the lowest dimension of the soul, or at least part of the Nefesh, remains with the body. So this is very important to, the, to, to our discussion as follows, because what we'll see is from a Jewish perspective, the body remains holy even after the soul leaves the body. And I, I need to explain the chidush, or the, um, the powerful nature of this idea that we might not have realized. In our first class, not tonight, but in our first class last week, I used the example extensively of a hand and a glove as the soul and a body. The glove is the body, and it's lifeless, and it's, it doesn't move, it doesn't, doesn't do anything. The hand is what moves it, and when you put the hand inside the glove, then the glove begins to move. It's not the glove that's moving, it's the hand that's moving. Now, you might get the impression from all this, from last week, that when you take off the glove, and you put the glove down, right, the glove is essentially worthless. You know, vis-a-vis, -vis or insofar as utility, the glove sitting you know, on, on a table or on the floor doesn't do anything. And you might have thought that the same thing is true with the body, that calls man, as long as the, the body has a soul, it has utility. But once the body no longer has a soul, then it no longer has utility, and then maybe it is 
I don't even want, want, want I, I don't want to use a, a, a coarse language, but it's, it no, let, let me just say it this way, it no longer has utility. No longer has utility. So you should know, and, and this is section three of today's class, three out of four sections, we're up to section three. Section three, we're going to learn that this is absolutely categorically not the case. Judaism considers the body to remain holy and sacred even after the soul separates and transitions away from the body. Even as the soul separates and transitions, the body remains holy. Number one, for multiple reasons. Number one, as we discussed, by virtue of the nefesh that remains connected with it. Number two, by virtue of the fact that it housed a soul. And there's a beautiful way to express this that I want to share with you from the text. This is going to be text 8a. I'm pulling it up on our screen, um, skipping a text, uh, text 7. Okay, take a look at what the Talmud says. Um, let's ask Richard. Please, Richard, please read text 8a. If you are available to do so, please unmute and take it away. Okay. Uh, one who is present at the time of a person's passing is required to tear their clothing. This is because a person's passing is likened to the burning of a Torah scroll. The Talmud says that if you are present when a loved one, when, when, when a human being passes away, that halachically, legally, you need to tear clothing. It's called kriya. You have to do kriya. Why? Because it's like the burning of a safer Torah, the burning of a Torah scroll. The halacha is, Yerushla says, that if God forbid a Torah scroll is burnt, right? God forbid some tyrant comes in and says, burn the synagogue, burn the scrolls. It's tear, tear the clothing out of a sign of mourning. The same thing is true if one is present at the time of a person's passing. By the way, you should know, our sages minimized this a little bit and said only the family, the immediate family, is required to do so. And this was because um, people were afraid, based on this law, to be around a person who was passing away that wasn't the relative, maybe a doctor or whatever, because they would have to keep on tearing their clothing. And you should, back in the day, people didn't have a lot of clothing. So to make it more manageable, this became something that is, uh, that is done by family, close family, and not necessarily by just anybody who is present at the time of a person's passing. I just mentioned that parenthetically. But here's the purpose of why this is brought. There's a correlation, a connection, that's a comparison in text 8a between a person passing away and the burning of a Torah school. And the question is, what, what exactly is the nature of that connection? This takes us to text 8b. I'm going to read this. This is from the Tosfos Yom, uh, This is from the Ritva, sorry, Rabbi Yom Tovashvili, uh, who was a great scholar in the 1200s. He writes as follows: Nachmanides, Ramban, points to the sacred names of God that are inked on a Torah scroll's parchment as an analogy for the sacred soul that is installed within the corporeal body. And I, I, I need to unpack this and explain very briefly what's going on here. The Torah scroll contains God's name. And therefore, the Torah scroll itself, the parchment, the ink, have a, have a, a designation of, of, of holiness. They are holy because they are inscribed with God's name. 
And even when a Torah scroll becomes unfit for use, it becomes unkosher, so to speak, it retains its holiness. In a very similar way, the Talmud, the Ritva, Nachmanides, the great sages, Jewish thought likens, sorry, in a similar way that Jewish law speaks about um, the, human, the human being, that the human body is like the parchment and the soul is like the ink of a Torah. And just like the ink written on parchment renders the parchment in a state of holiness, in a state of a ritual object, the same thing happens with the body. By virtue of the body housing the soul, for as long or as little as it does, the body itself becomes holy. The body itself gains a measure of sacredness. And that doesn't change even after the soul leaves the body. The body becomes holy and becomes holy forever, which is why, as reflected in Jewish law, we treat the body with, with, with reverence and respect. This is why Jewish law prescribes that we handle the deceased, the body of the deceased, in a very, very, very specific way. I want to share with you once again the text. We're going to look at now text number 9. Take a look at what it says. All who tend to a corpse must be aware that they are handling a holy entity. The human body is more than simply a sheath to a sacred entity, a tool that serves a supernal soul. Rather, it has itself become sanctified with an independent holiness similar to a Torah scroll. Yes, we gave the analogy of a glove and a hand and might have given the impression that after its use, the glove, the body is no longer needed, is no longer sacred. But that is a mistake. In Jewish thought, the fact that a soul, a holy soul, life itself, was housed in the body for any length of time, renders the body sacred and holy with its own holiness. And that holiness does not go away. This is why in Jewish law, when we prepare the body for its final rest, the body, again, we're not speaking about the soul. We spoke about the soul in our first two sections. We're now speaking about the body and the body's experience after death. Jewish law tells us that the body must be handled, as we saw, with respect and dignity. The body is gently cleansed and dressed in shrouds in preparation for burial. The body is always covered, even when it's being cleansed. The body is never placed, when I say clothed, it's always, its dignity is always maintained even when it's being cleansed. So it's not unnecessarily undressed. The body is never placed, a person is, the human body is never placed face down. No casual conversation is, is had in its presence. And the body is never left alone from the moment of the passing until it is laid to rest. It is the Jewish tradition not to leave a body alone. All six of these instructions and, 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 uh, and, and, and really Jewish areas of Jewish law pertaining to the body reflect our perspective 
and our perception of the body's dignity. Regarding this last point of not leaving the body alone, take a look at text number 10. We are required to maintain constant watch over a corpse even during the daytime, and even if there is no cause to suspect that something can happen to the body. Those who maintain watch are actively performing a mitzvah to the extent that they are meanwhile absolved from many other mitzvot, such as reading the Shema and reciting prayers at appropriate times. In other words, if a person is doing the mitzvah of watching the body, it absolves them pretty much of any other mitzvah. Take a look at the reason why in the second paragraph here. We maintain a watch over the dead out of respect. For if, and this should answer the question that I saw pop up in the chat, for if we were to leave the body alone, it would appear as if we have abandoned it, like a utensil that we no longer require. That is a powerful line. That is a powerful line. If we just walked away from those who have passed on from the body and said, you know, that's it. We're moving on and, and, and we have places to go and, you know, the person is deceased anyway. That is, that is considered to be a, like abandoning it, like a utensil that we no longer require. And that is not respectful to the body. Therefore, it's an ancient Jewish tradition. And, and I need to mention this. I need to mention this. You know, not everybody is aware of the Jewish tradition. Not everyone can perfectly always do all of the Jewish traditions. But it's important that we know what our tradition teaches. So I'm presenting, we're presenting Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition says that when a person passes away, the soul has its experience, the body remains holy, the body remains sacred. We treat it with dignity, we treat it with respect, no casual conversations, utmost dignity, and it's not left alone. It's not left alone because that might indicate even indirectly that we're no longer feeling the, the, the sanctity, the sacredness of the body. All of these laws respect the Jewish perspective on the body that even in death, the body, not just the soul, the body remains holy and must be treated thus at all times. And friends, this is another way in which we express our connection to our loved ones even after their passing, which is the central theme of today's class. Do we remain connected? How do we remain connected? This is another way in which we express that connection. The connection not just with soul and love, but the connection with the body of our loved ones too. After all, that, their body, their body was the physical interface that our soul had, that, that we had with that person. We connected with that soul through their body. We knew and we loved and we connected with that person through the interface of the body and that's how we continue to respect and care for the body after the soul leaves. And the soul certainly is aware of the care that we have for its body. As, as I said multiple times, it is the nefesh or part of the nefesh that remains with the body. And certainly the ruach and neshama that do transition away slowly, slowly, right? They are certainly still connected with the nefesh, which is still connected with the body. As we treat the body with respect, that gives a lot of pleasure and puts the soul at ease and keeps that bond intact with our loved ones. I need to mention, if we're talking about how we treat the body, I need to mention, not parenthetically, but essentially, 
about the Jewish mitzvah of burial. The reality is that decades ago, cremation was the anomaly. In 1960, 3.5% of Americans opted for cremation. In 2020, the estimate, you know, it's still, we're still just out of 2020, but the estimate is about a 65% cremation rate. By 2035, those that are studying this field are saying that the cremation rate is projected to be upwards of 80%. The number that I saw was 79.1%, so upwards of 80% cremation. It's important, and I need to mention this, and again, this is understanding that not everyone is aware of it, and not everyone, all, all the disclaimers are disclaimed and stated, but it's important to state the fact, and that is that Judaism teaches that the, the, the ideal way, the mitzvah of how we take care of those who have passed away, our loved ones, is to lay them to rest in the earth. And there are sources on this. I'm going to mention a few sources before we get into the why, although you could probably sense the why based on everything we've said up until now, but I'll spell it out in a moment. Let me share with you a few texts. Um, uh, no, skipping this text. Here we go. This is from Deuteronomy. You shall surely bury him or her, the person, on the same day as one's death. Let's continue text 13. People, this is from Kohelet, Ecclesiastes. People proceed to their eternal abodes and the mourners go about the streets. The dust returns to the earth as it was while the spirit returns to God who bestowed it. The line, the relevant line there is, of course, the dust returns to the earth as it was. And text 14, for you are dust and you will return to dust from Genesis. The body comes from the earth and it is entrusted as a deposit to the individual's care. Upon death, the deposit must be returned to the earth from where it came and buried there. These are some of the many sources in Jewish thought, scripture, and, and other areas of Jewish thought that speak of the mitzvah. It is literally a mitzvah to bury our loved ones who have passed on. It's a mitzvah to bury. Like there's a mitzvah of, of Rosh Hashanah and Rosh Hashanah. There's a mitzvah to, to hear the Shofar Rosh Hashanah. It's a mitzvah, a matzah on Passover, a mitzvah, whatever mitzvah you can think of, this is one of the 613 commandments, a mitzvah to bury. And we, we can understand this, you know, if we want, if we want a, a, a rationale or an understanding, we can understand this based on everything we've discussed up until now about the awareness of the soul for the body, the, the, the body's own sanctity, right? The soul is aware of what's going on because it's still connected. The nefesh is still connected with the body. Um, the body still has a nefesh and is still sacred and must be treated with respect. The soul we spoke about transitions slowly away from the body. All of the texts that we cited, three days, seven days, 30 days, 12 months, talk about the soul kind of revisiting the body and kind of mourning the loss of the body, but then slowly, you know, recognizing that it, that it needs to go, but it wants to stay, but it needs to go, and that process allowing itself to play out. How traumatic. It says in the sources for the soul to see a body be destroyed in an instant. Be, uh, be incinerated. And again, and again, I don't mean to speak too harshly, and I'm speaking from the perspective of what Judaism teaches about it. And I know that there's, there's, there's awareness and, and, and pragmatic considerations, and I get it, and, 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 and these are conversations, but, but, I, but, I, but, but it behooves me, 
I, 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 I feel obligated from a spiritual perspective, from a Jewish perspective, to share with you the Jewish perspective on, on, on how we treat our loved ones who have passed on. It is a mitzvah to bury, and it's completely consistent with everything we said about the soul, and about the body, and about our connection, and about the awareness, and about the nefesh, and about the sanctity, and the sacredness, and the, 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 the ink, and the parchment, and the Torah scroll. It's all consistent, and it's all the same idea. The body is sacred. We treat it with respect. And the most respectful thing we do is we return it to the earth. It came from the earth. We return it to the earth. And we allow God to, to take it from there. That is the mitzvah of burial. And again, it's an important thing to mention. There are some who say that it's not ecologically friendly. There are many studies that show that, that cremation is even more damaging on an ecological thing. But it's really not about that. It's really, that's not the core of it. Although I did want to mention that. Um, there is a movement today, green burials. Well, Jewish burials are the original green burials. It's totally natural, no chemicals, no embalming fluids. It's perfectly natural, perfectly organic, and it is true to the dignity of both soul, nefesh, and body. The final point that I want to mention, we're right at the time, it's 9.30, I ask you for 90 seconds. The last point I want to mention, stage four, is what happens after burial. And that I'm going to sum up by talking about grave visitation. Jewish law tells us that it's important to visit our loved ones in the cemetery. In fact, there's a custom to visit on a yard site. There's a custom to visit before Rosh Hashanah, before the Jewish New Year, and on auspicious occasions. And we visit just to visit. We visit to connect we visit to indicate that we feel the connection and that our loved ones should know that we're still thinking about them. In fact, there is a tradition that you may be aware of that when visiting a cemetery, when visiting the gravesite of a loved one to take a stone, a pebble. Have you heard of this one? Not if you've heard of this. And you mark the grave by putting a pebble on the grave. Why do we do that? For two reasons. Number one, to evoke the sense like a stone that's eternal, rocks, eternal. We find something that's round that also indicates the circle of life. But we try to indicate the eternality of our belief in the soul. We believe the soul is eternal and the stone marks that. But you know what it also does? It's a reminder for us and them that they are not forgotten. That we are still thinking about them, that we still love them. And with this we come full circle back to the beginning of our class. The beginning of the class we spoke directly about the question, are we still connected with our loved ones? From a Jewish perspective, the answer is yes. From a Kabbalistic perspective, the answer is yes. From a halachic perspective. The answer is yes. Hey there. He'll sign back in. I'm back in. I'm back in. Ta I, I know. Talk about disconnections. Talk about disconnections. No, 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 no. Don't leave. I'm back. So here's the deal. The class is about this the class is about connections. So here's the point. Even even when, even when there's a disconnection, you should know there's a connection right around the corner. And I think, uh, I, I think, I don't know what happened. There must have been a glitch in my, in my connection, my internet for a moment. But I'm glad that you stayed and uh, for the finale of this class. 
look, the, the theme of the class is all about connections, and even when it seems perhaps that there's a disconnection, there's still a connection. And this is true for the soul, this is true in our relationship with the body, and it's true as we visit our loved ones in the cemetery. It's a mitzvah, and in fact, there are sources, text 17, which we don't have a chance to read, that says that those in the cemetery say, we take pleasure when we are visited in the cemetery. Why? Because it expresses our understanding and our belief and our relationship with the connections that we maintain. So in summation, we began the class with the question, can we maintain a connection with our loved ones after their passing? Unequivocally, the answer is yes. Soul remains connected with souls, always can remain connected. The love is the key. Love is the channel. Love is that connection that connects us with our loved ones. We relate to them. They relate to us. But as we've seen tonight, it's not just love as a concept, but it's also what we do for our loved ones after their passing, how we treat their bodies, how we maintain our connection with them and our memory of them in visiting the gravesite. And we didn't even speak about honoring them uh, by, by continuing their legacies and, 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 and continuing uh, making a mark on the world as, as they did. There are many ways to remain connected, but one thing is for sure, after death, we can remain connected and remain connected in a stronger way than before. I ask you to indulge me for one more moment to share with you one final text that I think is powerful and summarizes everything we spoke about. This is a letter a letter that was penned by the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1958. He wrote this to a woman named Mrs. Chana Sharfstein. She was a young woman who had lost, within a very short time period, both her, her sorry, not both, her father, her mother, and her mother-in-law in a very short amount of time. This is what the Rebbe wrote to her in consolation. Blessing and greeting. I received your undated letters in which you write about your emotional upsets in connection with the passing of your mother and the questions which are troubling you in this connection involving also questions in regard to the passing of your father. Peace unto them. So the Rebbe writes one point, but here's the next point. Another fundamental point to remember, which has a direct bearing on your letter, is that all believers in God believe also in the survival of the soul. Actually, this principle has even been discovered in this physical world where science now holds as an absolute truth that nothing in this world, in the physical world, can be absolutely destroyed. How much more so, that's the law of conservation of matter, how much more so in the spiritual world, especially in the case of the soul, which in no way can be affected by the death and disintegration of the physical body. It would be silly and illogical to assume that because a certain organ of the body ceases to function, affecting other physical organs of the body, that the spiritual soul would also be affected thereby. The truth is that when the physical body ceases to function, the soul continues its existence, not only as before, but even on a higher level, inasmuch as it is no longer handicapped by the restraints of the physical frame. Thirdly, and listen to this, this is the kind of the final points over here. Thirdly, the attachment of children to their parents and the general attachment between close relatives during life on this earth is surely not a physical attachment by the respective physical bodies of the relatives. Essentially, the attachment is a spiritual one due to the spiritual affinity between those concerned and the qualities of the soul, including such spiritual things as character, kindness, 
goodness, etc., all of which are attributes of the soul and not of the body. Therefore, also every action on the part of a person in relation to a beloved person and the desire to benefit that person is not directed toward pleasing the body, the physical body, his bones and tissue, for it is the spiritual pleasure that one is concerned with. In view of the above, it is clear that even after the physical body has disintegrated and disappeared from view, it is still possible to bring joy and benefit to the soul, which as noted above, not only survives, but does so on a higher level, and all the things which had previously brought joy and pleasure to one's parents will continue to do so even after they are physically no longer alive. This summarizes pretty much our discussion tonight. There is a soul. It remains connected with our loved ones, with us, in an even greater way. And what we, what we do for them, including what we do in maintaining the dignity of the physical body, all expresses our love and our care for our loved ones. And following these traditions and values in Judaism can bring us much comfort and strength to we who remain behind after the passing of loved ones. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for lesson number two of Journey of the Soul. Thank you for being part of this journey, and I look forward to seeing you next week for lesson number three. Speaking of lesson number three, let me share with you quickly what we're going to talk about, and then I'm going to open it up for questions. I'm going to go to the questions in the chat as well, and we'll have a conversation. Next week, is called, the class is called The Morning After, Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Today we explore the unbreakable connection that exists between souls, even after their passing. But how do we balance this belief in the soul's eternality and our ability to connect with them, how do we balance that with the devastating feeling of loss, that gaping hole that exists in our hearts after the loss of a loved one? So next week, we look at the very real dynamics of grief and loss and bereavement from a Jewish perspective. We're going to explore the natural contours and stages of grief and see how the Jewish grieving process, in other words, the grieving process as discussed in Judaism with its unique traditions can help us process our pain in a sensitive, holy, and healthy manner. I look forward to continuing this journey with you next week. Again, thank you for being here. Thank you for being part of it. And thank you for the continued conversation. All right, let's get into the chat. Um, and of course, your questions. So feel free at this point, if, if, you, if you have to go, if you wanna go, you can certainly do that. If you wanna stay in and, and discuss, I'm here for the next little bit. Um, Judith, yes. yes. Hi. Good to see you, hey. Um, a question about Alzheimer's in particular. So with, with Alzheimer's, the body loses, or any degenerative disease, I guess, the body loses its ability to have an intellectual connection to reality, ultimately physical abilities. And so, you know, speaking personally from my dad's journey, does the soul stay throughout that? Because it feels to me like Ruach had gone a long time before the actual passing. Does the Jewish religion have a thought on that? It's an excellent question. It's an excellent question. What you're asking is, could we perhaps say that some basic life force of the soul is remaining tethered to the person, but maybe some of the higher dimensions of the soul have already transitioned. 
Right. Um, I have not seen that in the sources. My understanding is that the soul, even the higher levels, do remain connected with the with the body, with the person. Um, and, and really, what's the the way I understand it, based on Kabbalah? Listen, I'm I'm not. I, there's no point for me to tell you how I feel about it, but really to tell you what, I, what, I've, what I've learned about it from Jewish thought. I'm not representing my own feelings on the matter. I'm trying to represent traditional Jewish perspective. So I'm going to do my best to do that. Um, even if it's not discussed the specifics of you know, any single individual illness, etc. Or disease. But one thing that's, that, that is discussed is that the soul, on whatever level we're talking about, in order to function, requires what's called a vessel within the body to express that. So it's like the, the, the way Kabbalah talks about this is light, I'll give you the, the, the language, R and Kaylee, light and vessel. So you need both to work together to, to, to have it optimized. If the vessel is, um, is compromised or is not, is not, for whatever reason, is not, is not functioning um, or healthy in, in, in a certain way, then the light, if you will, of the soul is not able to, to operate in, in, in its fullest measure. Does that mean that the light jumps or disappears? Or does it mean that it just can't be expressed in a full way? My understanding is that it's not the former, but it's the latter. So to your question of does that mean that the Ruach and Neshama have perhaps already gone and only the Nefesh is remaining behind, my understanding is that it wouldn't be the case. The Ruach and Neshama are still there even if it can't be seen. And ex when I say seen, expressed in an obvious way, it's still there until the moment of passing. And at that point, that's when the, uh, those dimensions move on. That is my understanding of it. Um, there may be some more nuances to it, but that's, that's a basic understanding that I have of, of the sources. Okay. Which, mean, which means essentially, to, 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 to summarize it, maybe to put it into different terms, it's more of a limitation that we have mm -hmm. than an objective absence of the soul. Right? So it's, it's kind of like, give you another way to understand it. It's like you have an idea that's so big that you can't, you can't articulate it in language. Or an emotion that's so big that you can't, you can't formulate the words for it. Does that mean the idea is not there or the feeling's not there? It's, it's there. Not only is it there, it's there in a full measure. It's, it's there almost too big for, for the vessel. So when th expression happens, when light and vessel are, are working perfectly in, in a symbiotic way, when the vessel is not, is not expressing it, it doesn't necessarily mean the light's not there. So that's, that's uh, I think I'm reiterating it, but maybe with a little bit of, a, of, a, of, of another angle. Makes, it makes me wonder whether that eases the path to transition, because at that point, the soul's kind of already a little dis dissatisfied with its vessel. I don't know, maybe I'm looking for... No, you could say that. I, you could say that. You could yeah. say that. And, and, and I think based on what we discussed tonight... And what we'll discuss next week, because next week also directly ties into this conversation, I think there might be some measure of, of, um, of even if not separation, but already setting the stage 
for an under understanding of transition yeah. from the soul's perspective. If we could put it that way, I think I think it might be accurate to say that. Um, even what, what I said last week's class, if you recall at the end of last week's class, we talked about living a more spiritually oriented life. And, and I didn't bring it around full circle because I had so many things to get to tonight. But honestly, that also ties into the same idea about transition, right? So the more spiritually oriented we are, the easier the transition of the soul is away from the body because it's not missing as much the physical dynamics. Of course, it does miss that. Every soul will miss that and will need a transition. But the more we're leaning towards something a little bit higher, that helps the transition become a little bit easier. Again, getting back to our example, um, and I don't mean to, to reduce it too much, but there are ways yeah. to set our children up for easier um, separation, if you will, or easier transitions into different spaces in, in a healthy way. Not in an unhealthy way, not in a drastic way, but, but in, in a healthy way, there are conversations and skills that we can do, and, and it's similar. And that, that's not exactly the point that you brought, but I, I also wanted to bring it back to... The, um, it, it touches on it, but it all, I also want to bring it back to what we discussed in the first lesson. But thank you for asking that and for, for sharing that as well. Thank you. Sure. Um, uh, I saw a question. You know what happened? When I lost connection, I lost all my chats. So, um, yeah, so I'm a little bit, um, you know, without that. Justine, you wrote that you have a question. Are you still here? Justine, are you here? She left. Justine left. Okay. Jerry, go ahead. Uh, I got a question. We talked earlier about three days and then seven days. And then 30 days and 12 months. And all of those correspond to times of mourning for the survivors. Yes. Where does the, where does the three days come in? Excellent. Excellent. So is that the time before burial? No. No. Excellent. Excellent question. Thank you for asking. So that we could clarify, that was another one of those series of texts that we kind of moved through at a very rapid pace um, to get to the kind of the bigger picture. But let's focus on the three days and what is the three-day period? What, what, what does that mean and where do we see that reflected in Jewish law and the Jewish experience? So to, to, to address the last part of your question first, the mitzvah is to bury at the earliest opportunity, ideally same day, if not next day, if it can't be the next day because of travel and relatives and, 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 and honoring the deceased and preparing it for burial, you know, then maybe it's pushed off a day or two. But we try to do it as close as possible. So the three days is not for that. What we're saying is that for three days, a person, right, it, it's, it's a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I have to, I'm try, I need this to, to articulate this in a way that's, um, that's accurate. For three days, the source said, it's about crying and not about eulogizing. You see, eulogizing is already about looking at, you know, the legacy and looking at the good times and looking at, you know, you know uh, it's about almost kind of moving it into a bit of a positive, right? And, that, and I, it doesn't mean that you can't have any, you know, fond recollections and any, you know, positive memories for the first three days. But the first three days is where Jewish law says we're allowed to. It's normal to not, to, to be in the state of tears, to be in the state of, 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 of grief and fully feeling that grief and not wanting to hear or not being comforted even by 
the eulogies and by the, the fond recollections. It doesn't mean that in the Shiva house the first day that we don't do that, you know, day two or whatever it is, that we don't do that. We do do that also. But the first three days are in a more acute way of sensing the pain. And then for the remaining, it's not seven days on top of that. It's seven days including that, which means for the next four days, it's more about the eulogy and it's more about you know, uh, um, recollections and, and legacy and, and speaking, you know, maybe some, as people like to talk about, humorous stories of, of, of loved ones and to bring smiles on people's faces and our own faces. So that's a little bit, th that's, that's kind of the intention. I will say together with that, I hope that clarifies somewhat um, this three-day period that maybe we're not so familiar with, but we're, we're also going to be speaking about uh, on a very detailed level Jewish teachings on the grieving process in next week's class. Um, in next week's ses session, we're really going to focus on the grieving process, the way it's explored and, and understood in, in Jewish thought. So stay tuned for that because I think some of that also will be clarified. I hope that, that clarifies a bit. Um, Doreen, I see you have a question. Yeah, oh, I got so many. It, well, just, is this for all souls? And, and then... When does the soul start going through whatever process it needs? Excellent question. Excellent question. Good. Good question. Good, good question. The answer is yes, this is for every soul. Every soul goes through the process of separating from the body, and it's a transition. Even a perfect tzaddik still has a separation process. Number one. Are we talking just Jewish souls? No, every soul. Every soul. Every soul is spiritual, and every, every human soul is spiritual, and every soul has... Sometimes don't bury for a long time. Listen, we have a tradition about how we do it, but the concepts remain the same all the way through. Now, to your, to your other question, which was about... Um, um, what was it about? The, say it again, the process? Well, souls... You know, certainly, doubt, you know, not of a but a regular person. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Your question is about like reckoning and, and, and judgment and that sort of thing. So we will explore in, in subsequent sessions, we will explore about heaven and hell and about, about, about those types of dynamics, but very short. This happens concurrently. In other words, as the soul is... Um, transitioning on from the body, it also, right, the more it moves away from the body, the more it can take stock of what it did, what it still needs to do, and, and, and kind of look at that and divest itself, frankly, of, of, of any attachments that it needs to divest itself of in order to go where it needs to go. And again, we'll speak about that more in, in subsequent lessons. Somebody wrote before about Kaddish, 11 months versus the 12 months, um, it says in, in Jewish thought that the process of cleansing the soul, fully divesting of any material and or negative attachments that it may have picked up on its journey on earth, that divestment period, the maximum amount of time takes 12 months. For the Rishon, for the wicked, it takes 12 months. We don't want to assume about our loved ones that they needed the full 12 months which is why we only do Kaddish for 11 months and one day. Because if we did it for 12, Kaddish helps ease the transition. Again, we didn't speak about it today. We're going to have it in another lesson. But Kaddish is a prayer that in, in the Jewish formulation eases the transition 
for the soul. Kaddish is an act of kindness for the soul, another form of connection. We do it not for ourselves as much as we do it to help the transition of the soul of our loved ones. It's a very important point and it does connect with today's class and the idea of connection and those themes. It's really important to, to remember that that's what the purpose is and that's why we only do it for 11 months and one day because we don't want to declare about our loved ones and say, yeah, they probably needed the full 12 months. God, God forbid to think that and God forbid to express that in our actions. So we only do it for 11 months and one day. So we're in the 12th month with one day and then we stop saying Kaddish with the belief that our loved ones have not needed the full 12 months to transition away but have, uh, have found that peace and that that uh, embrace the new reality in, in, in a short amount of time. Sylvia, question. Don't forget to unmute. Don't forget to unmute. Yeah, hit unmute and jump in. Yeah. Okay. I remember hearing several times uh, during my parents, Shepard and father and then my mother's, that the soul remains in the house yes. of the deceased. Yes. It might have been three days, I don't remember, but when you said the three days, I tried to think that that could have been Yes, it, it says, I want to go back to the text. I'm not going to pull it up on the screen, but I have it here. I have my textbook next to me. Let me find the text. I believe, hold on, give me one second. Um, it says in the Zohar, it says in Kabbalah, for seven days, the soul goes from the house where it lived to the grave and from the grave back to the house which is why, and I wish we had a little bit more time to delve into each text, but we had upwards of 20 texts today, and that could take the whole class just doing the text and not even connecting the dots. Um, that means, that's for, sorry, that is one of the reasons why we do the Shiva, ideally in the house of the one, of, of the one who passed away, the deceased, because that is where their soul is looking for comfort. And it's such a powerful and frankly painful text to read that the soul is literally looking for its body, looking for its home. And the pain that we feel, again, this is the point that I did mention in the class, the pain that we feel is not only our own pain, but it, it, it's an empathetic pain and it mirrors the pain that the soul is going through at the very same time. The soul is... I'm not going to say the soul is lost because God forbid a soul is never lost, right? But the soul has feelings of displacement, of not being where it wants to be or where it, because it's not where it was. And that's painful for the soul. There's no way, there's no way around that. It's straight up stated in, 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 in our Jewish teachings that, that it is painful for the soul. It doesn't mean that it doesn't get better. It doesn't mean that it's, it, it's, it's not intended. It's, it's part of the process. But it's a difficult part of the process. Thanks for mentioning that and thanks for raising that. Howard, yeah. One, one second, Howard, what were you were going to say? So your, your question is, what does it mean when we talk about a lost soul? I don't know if there's any such thing as a, as a really as a lost soul. I think we use that euphemistically. We talk about people that haven't found their purpose or people seem to be wandering. I don't know that it means literally a soul that is, that is lost. There are sources in Kabbalah that speak about souls that have maybe um, unconventional uh, journeys and transitions, but that's, uh, you know, there, there, there are certainly unusual cases, and, um, 
And, uh, but, but for the most part, the, the experience of the soul is the way we described it. And it's not lost, but it sometimes feels a little bit, it feels a little bit disconnected. Um, can a soul get stuck? I see in the chat, can a soul get stuck? There's, there's, too, much, there's too much guidance from, from on high, from God, to this, for the soul to really get stuck. And if it does get stuck, there's reincarnation, which we'll speak about in lesson number five. Um, and Adina Malka is mentioning she felt her mother's soul as a wisp lingering in her bedroom. Yeah, that's, that's something that, that, has, that many, many, many have um, recalled or, or mentioned. And it's not the same for everybody. And some talk about a light and some talk about some sort of sense. Some, and, and not everyone has the experience. And certainly not everyone has the same experience. But there's certainly some power in, uh, not some power, there's certainly tremendous power in, in, um, in, in that moment. Questions? Questions? Rabbi, yes, Rhonda, go ahead. When you were talking about the soul being comforted in its home, yeah. it made me wonder, are there like deceased relatives who are wel welcoming it and comforting it and bringing it home? Do we know about Excellent, that? excellent question. That is a powerful question. In other words, let me restate the question. When a soul leaves the body and goes on its journey to where it goes, does it reconnect with the souls of those that were in its narrative on earth? Right? That's your question. And is it welcomed? Is the transition aided to? There are sources, Jewish sources, that say definitively the answer is yes. The soul remains connected. The soul of the one who passed on, right, remains connected both with those souls that are still in bodies on earth as well as those souls that it was previously connected to. If, you, if we think back to the original text that we had, I think it was 1A, from the author of the letter that he wrote as a consolation to the disciples of his colleague, right? Um, and the idea that we mentioned there was that this, the ruach is untethered and in high definition, and the way to connect to a ruach is with love, then it can happen from a soul on earth to a ruach, but it can also be ruach to ruach. Does that make sense? Spirit to spirit directly, right? So it's all about the love. Sometimes we think that love, and this gets back to Judith, what we mentioned before in, in, in the question that you asked, sometimes we think that the only reality is the reality that's perceptible, that we can perceive through the vessel. And if we can't see through the vessel, it means it doesn't exist, right? Like love is defined as a feeling, an emotion that the body can feel. But that's not the whole meaning of, that's not the whole experience of love. Love transcends the body's channeling of such love and the reason why I say that is because you can have two souls unencumbered by, a, by bodies that have a love for each other, soul to soul in a pure way. So we might, for the human mind that again constitutes the soul's intelligence, the neshama working through the human brain, it's hard to fathom well what is love if there's no one that's alive? How can We can love those who have passed on and maybe we can imagine somehow on some level they love us, but how can two souls love each other if there are no bodies involved at all? Again, that's us limiting the concept of love to its physical manifestation. We have to, we, we have to be able to, and I guess it's good training, right? Divest, divest the concepts from a very materialistic understanding 
and understand them on a bit of a pure level. Love exists on a pure level, soul to soul. Excellent question. Thank you for asking that. Mark, you had a question. Go ahead. I saw the hand and I saw the chat. Yeah. I'll jot this down. There's a seeming contradiction that the soul stays on earth to communicate uh, with us. Uh, After three days, seven days, 30 days, 12 months, each stage then concludes as it's gone. But the only text that said uh, we can communicate uh, uh, after the soul moves on is through a tzaddik. It doesn't talk about somebody who's not. So can we communicate or not? Yeah, so you, you're, you're pointing out two things that are very important. Number one, in that series of texts, three days, seven days, 30 days, 12 months, there seemed to be a contradiction. One says that after three days, the soul moves on. The other one says after seven days, the soul moves on. The next one says after 30 days, the soul moves on. The next one says after 12 months, the soul moves on. So when does the soul move on? So I addressed that um, in the class, and I just want to reemphasize it here, that the, w- the way we understand it, looking at the bigger picture and certainly as reflected in Jewish law with the different stages of mourning, is that every text that says that after three, like after three days the soul moves on, it doesn't mean completely. It's kind of like the example that I gave, that the kid, the, the child that goes to college, after three days is now used to college. Does it mean they don't sometimes feel a longing? Yes, they do, but it means relative to the pain or to the, to the, to the longing that they had before, Relative to that longing, they moved on. But relative to a more subtle longing, they haven't moved on. So that's why every time it says the soul moves on, it just means moves to the next stage of, 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 of transition. I hope that makes sense. It made sense in my mind. I hope it came through across as I spoke it. As to your second question, which is what's the source of connecting to our loved ones? Is it only that source from that letter, text 1A, that do- talks about its tzaddik? So, there is a text that I skipped, which is really important. And you know what? It's so important, and Mark, thank you for asking the question, that I'm going to break with tradition, Q&A, I don't usually share texts, I'm going to share a text because of how important this is. This is text 16, the truth is, it's a critical text, and I, you know, I didn't get to it in the class because we were running against the clock, but here's what's going on. This is not talking about a tzaddik exclusively. This is talking about everybody. And here's what it says. It says, The nefesh, as you know, remains present in the grave due to the fact that it remains among the living. In other words, the nefesh is in the grave and the grave is in the cemetery and the cemetery is on planet Earth and planet Earth is among the living. In other words, since the nefesh remains among the living, it is therefore acquainted with their pain. The nefesh in the grave is acquainted with the pain of the living. At their time of need, listen to this, the nefesh pleads with God for mercy on their behalf. When the inhabitants of the world are in need, when they are in sorrow and they visit the cemetery, the nefesh is aroused to their plight. Listen to this. The nefesh ascends and awakens the ruach, which in turn entreats God for mercy. Consequently, the Holy One, blessed be He, has mercy on the world. This is not only talking about a tzaddik, this is talking about everybody, this is talking about every person um, that has passed on. The nefesh remains in the grave and it remains connected both with those that are still alive as well as its own ruach 
which is in Gan Eden Atacht on Lower Gan Eden. And therefore, it serves as a bridge between these two realities. It knows our pain, and it can present it to the, to the Ruach, which then presents it ultimately probably to the, to the Neshama and then the other stages until it gets to where it needs to go. The point is, there's an absolute connection that we have with our loved ones. And, and in that text, the context is about visiting the power of visiting the cemetery. But even without visiting the cemetery, there are ways to connect with love directly to the Ruach. This is a way of visiting and connecting with the Nefesh. But through love, we said, you can connect with the Ruach. I hope I'm not using too many Hebrew words to confuse everybody. I hope what I'm saying is making sense. Um, Great, thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. Thanks for asking. Adi, go ahead. Do you have a question? Uh, okay, I see your hand was raised. I, I have a, I have a yes. question. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, it gets back to the beginning uh, when you were talking about uh, the uh, Ruach and the uh, Neshama being uh, constrained by the body. Right. And, um, you know, it, it makes sense to me in that, uh, you know, the, the, the body is is constrained by, you know, the, the five senses and, you know, our perception as it is, you know, in three dimensions and all the constraints we have by our physical being. But um, my question is then when the, uh, when the soul is released into, released at the time of death, you know, if we still think about the soul in the same way, we, we in a way, still using those same um, constraints to to identify the soul, and is it is it not more? Um, should we not be thinking of the soul as one soul and not uh, separate souls? Because you know, is it, it doesn't make sense to use the constraint of our own perception right. to identify the soul um, when we when we should be thinking of one soul. Excellent. You know, one soul, or maybe even you know, God God Himself. Ex excellent question. Excellent question. Thanks for asking this. Your question, if I had to summarize it the way I understand your question is, from our frame of reference, we think of, we can think of um, uh, different dimensions of the soul that reflect different realities, but, may, but it seems like these different dimensions reflect kind of realities the way they play out on the ground. Biology, emotion, intelligence seem to be limitations or differentiations that exist down here and maybe not on a spiritual level, so why after the soul leaves the body are we still speaking of different dimensions? So really the answer and it's or really the approach that I would take, the response that I would give, and it's not much different than, than along the lines of, the, of, of some responses that I've given before to some other questions that aren't, weren't exactly the same but I think related, is that what we perceive is a combination of, of, of light and vessel, of soul and body. But even without the vessel, without the body, there are still different dimensions of light, so to speak. So you have different layers of the soul. You have within the soul, there are still objectively different dimensions. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chai, And that is irrespective of whether or not there is a conduit to express it, I'll give you an example. Right now, around you and around me, there are waves, right? Radio waves, television waves. If you had a radio receiver, I'm thinking of the old school ones, right? With little, again, me and my rabbit ears, me and like the antenna, and maybe a little 
twist dial, you know, where you tune in. Yeah, you can scroll through that timeline of the radio. Welcome to the, right? You can scroll through. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to impersonate a radio. It may or may not be working. And you can catch different frequencies. And it's incredible. Now, turn off the radio. Nothing. Turn on the radio. You hear it. Multiple channels. Where, where's it coming from? Here's the deal. The radio waves are all around us. One radio wave? No. Different radio waves. It's just that without, without the receiver that can tune in and express it or play it or whatever you want to call it, you can't hear it to the, audibly to the ear. But it doesn't mean that just because you don't have a radio to play it that those waves or channels or you know, radio stations don't exist. They exist. They're here. They're right around us. And I'm giving you a physical example and trying to draw a spiritual analogy to it. So on a physical level, there are all of these different channels of information around us, but you need uh, a Kali, a vessel, to take it, make sense of it, and display it. The same thing is true with the soul and the body. With the absence of the body, the channels, the frequencies of the soul don't collapse into one, which I think was your question. Your question was, why do we still speak of nefesh, ruach, neshama, chaya, yechida as different elements after it's no longer connected with the body? And again, my response is, that, 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 again, one way to look at it is that they are different, objectively different frequencies, different stations, different you know, colors, whatever analogy you want to use. I use the example of radio stations. Um, the absence of the receiver doesn't collapse the stations into one. They still remain different realities on a soul level, on a spiritual level. I hope that makes sense. Um, and again, it's important to understand that, that things work together as long as they work together. When they don't work together... It doesn't undo the other reality. Hope that makes sense. Okay, I, we've got, all right, I appreciate the question and thanks for the opportunity to clarify that. All right, there's so much more to talk about and thank God we have another four sessions with more Q&A. We have many, many hours of conversation, both in class and I'm happy to have conversations as well outside of class. My cell phone number is in the signature on all my emails. You can call me, you can text me, you can WhatsApp me. Um, I still have WhatsApp. Um, and <laughs> and um, you can certainly feel free to reach out in any other way um, or with love. Can't guarantee that I'll get it directly, ruach to ruach. I don't know that I'm tuned in on that level, but you can try and maybe I'll get it, but otherwise use the, uh, the physical channels. All right, it's wonderful to see everybody. Thanks for joining, and uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. Stay tuned for more uh, very powerful opportunities of study and connection coming up. Check your email for more information that we'll be releasing in the next few days about some incredible opportunities to connect um, in addition to this current course. All right, mom, good to see you. Everybody else as well, great to see you all. Lila Tov, and um, it's great to see everybody. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. Good to see you. Of course, of course. Good to see you. How to reconnect, how to visit them, the Departing the summit and then come back. Are you gonna tell us how to do that? Uh, no guarantees. Good question. That's what we we need, Mrs. We need Mrs. Freeman to uh, to talk about that that on that level. So that's uh, that's exactly that's that's next level. That's ne that's next level stuff. All right. Have a wonderful night. We'll see everybody. Talk to you soon. 
Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.